Well, I've had a number of people come up to me after we finished the Revelation series and kind of acknowledge that at the outset, they weren't that excited about it, that they were a little intimidated by it and didn't know how the series would go. And many of those same people were gracious enough and kind enough to come up to me when the series was over a couple weeks and indicate how much they enjoyed it, how they'd been blessed by it. Um, and in some ways, it could feel like we're going in reverse now, okay? Like, how do you move from the book of Revelation, which is the high watermark of God's word, this picture of, of peace and fellowship and communion with the triune God forever and ever and ever in a beautiful restored creation where there will be no more crying or tears for the former things have passed away. I mean, how do you go on from that? And how do you really go from that to the book of Judges? Like, like that's kind of like, can feel like it's an abrupt shift, like going in reverse. I thought of a good analogy. So a number of you have also been kind enough to ask me, how are Stephanie and you doing, given that a week and a half ago you dropped off your baby at college, okay? And I'll have to say we're doing great. Um, <laughs> the empty nest, it's underrated, okay? So we kind of have a spring in our step, um, not because we love Jack any less. I will just say that he was ready and we were ready, okay? Um, and he's not here to hear about this. Um, at any rate, it was almost four years ago to the day that we dropped off Jack, that we had dropped off Cole, four years before. Exact same dorm, exact same week, all of these same things, and yet Stephanie and I were not nearly as nervous, we were not nearly as overwhelmed, really because we had done it before. We knew exactly what to expect, we, we knew when to get there, when other people wouldn't be there, how to quietly move him in, Knowing the end helps you appreciate. Knowing what to expect helps you to enjoy the process. I think that's true now as we go through the book of Judges, as we kind of like set the context for our study in Joshua and move to the book of Judges. Once you know the end, now you can better appreciate the beginning and the middle. Once you know the whole story, you can now see things and appreciate things that you never saw before. Okay, because the first time you go through, you're just trying to get it. But once you've been there, the Bible just comes alive. You see foreshadowings. You see all of these things that are pointing ahead to a greater reality. And so that's what we're going to do all fall is we're going to go in the next couple weeks. We'll, we'll shift into the book of Judges. And then we'll shift into Advent and be prepared for the coming of our Savior at Advent. So with that in mind, please stand for the reading of God's Word. This week we find ourselves in Joshua 3. Next week we'll find ourselves at the end of Joshua. And then on September 10th, we're going to kick off the book of Judges. This is providing us the context for where we're going. Remember, beloved, these are the very written words of God. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Shittim, 
And they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel. And they lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and they commanded the people. As soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, meaning you and the ark, about 2,000 cubits in length, that's about half a mile. Do not come near it in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua said to the priests, take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. The Lord said to Joshua, today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, here is how you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will, without fail, drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now therefore take 12 men from the tribes of Israel, each from each tribe a man, and when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming from above shall stand in one heap. Now go to panel five. So, when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped in the brink of the water. Now, remember this editorial note from the author, extremely important Okay, now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest. Verse 16, the waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside the Zarethan and those flowing down toward the sea of the Arabah, the salt sea or the dead sea. It was completely cut off. That was about 18 miles upstream. And the people passed over opposite Jericho. 
Now the priests bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan and all Israel was passing over dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. Indeed, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever and may he add his blessing to it. You may be seated. So this morning, our, our purpose, our mission is clear. We're gonna try to identify what the purpose of this miracle was, this great and grand miracle. We're gonna try to identify what the purpose of the miracle was, what it meant for them, and what it means for us. And to help us do that, we're gonna build the sermon around two observations. Two observations that are gonna help answer us, for us, that question. The two observations are, number one, this event happened to instill confidence and encouragement given the enormity of the challenge ahead. It was done to instill confidence and encouragement to the people given the enormity of the challenge that lay ahead to let them know that the Lord was going with them and before them, that the Lord would be with them in the midst of this incredibly difficult undertaking that we will come to appreciate pretty soon. And second, to foreshadow a much greater reality. Now that we've been through the whole Bible, we've finished with Revelation, you're gonna be amazed at the number of ways that Joshua 3 anticipates the person and work, the life and death of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is jaw-dropping once you know the whole story to see how this part relates to the whole. It is amazing how you have these 39, or I'm sorry, 66 different books, 27 new, 39 all, that form a cohesive whole, and how the Old Testament points to the new. It is, it is so encouraging and really mind-boggling. Okay, point number one, or observation number one. This miracle occurred to instill confidence and encouragement given the challenge so the people would know, they would know, they wouldn't question, they would know the God of Israel, who's mentioned over and over again as the Lord of all the earth, was with the people in this undertaking because it was a challenge, all right? Let me remind you, back in Numbers 13, the Lord had spent out, sent out 12 spies after the people had been delivered from their bondage to Egypt under Pharaoh's oppressive hand. He had led them out with a mighty hand. 12 spies to represent the 12 tribes were sent on a reconnaissance mission into the promised land to spy it out, to check it out. I know you know your Bible. Do you remember what happened? 10 of the 12 re reported back a very negative report. Like, let me read to you from Numbers 13. 10 of the 12 spies said, the land we explored, it devours those living in it. All the people we saw there in Canaan are of great size. We seemed like grasshoppers compared to them. No way we can do this. Okay, I'm glad that Haven Coleman, your brothers, your twin brothers are named Joshua and Caleb. Those were the two spies that said, we can do it, okay? 
The other 10 said, there's absolutely no way. There are giants in the land. We'll be completely overwhelmed. And so in response to this, as a consequence, the Lord had that entire generation pass away in the desert. They had to wait 40 years for that faithless generation to pass away. And so here we are. It's a new generation. They're about to pass over the Jordan River and inherit their promise, okay? The question of the text is, how are these people going to respond? Are they gonna respond in faith and belief? Are they gonna trust in the Lord or are they not? Now think about this. This land that they were being given, it was occupied. They would have to conquer, do you know how many armies they would have to conquer to inherit the land? Over 30 armies, these wandering Israelites were gonna have to conquer in order to take possession of the land. There is no more difficult people to conquer than those people that are fighting for their lives, that are defending their land, their wives, the women, the children. These people, these Canaanites were not just gonna hand over the land and let them walk in. To say this was a daunting task would be an understatement. It was perhaps more of a miracle that they ultimately took Canaan than even being delivered from Egypt. Okay, so extraordinary claims, extraordinary asks require extraordinary proof or encouragement. So the Lord is saying, I'm with you. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to go before you into this land. I'm going to help you take possession of this territory. And so what did he do to encourage the people to remind them, to prove to them that he was capable of going before them. What did he do? This was ingenious. So he lines up the entire nation of people on the east side of the Jordan River opposite Jericho. There could have been a million people there. They all got there. They settled down. Do you remember from the text how many days were they there camped before the Jordan River? What does the text say? on the first, um, on panel three. What does it say there? How many days? Three days they were camped out before the Jordan River. Why were they camped out before the Jordan River for three days? We'll go to panel five. Look at the editorial note in verse 15 on panel five of Joshua three. Just kind of, it's almost like an aside. Now the Jordan River, it overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest. Do you understand what that would have meant? That would have meant that the river was at flood stage. Okay, now those of you who have driven from like Dallas, Texas to the south, invariably you've got to cross over a massive river. As you come into the state of Mississippi, the great Mississippi River. And there's a huge bridge there in Vicksburg that I have to cross over every year when we make our family pilgrimage. And the Mississippi River, like, 
until you've done that, like being from Charlotte, North Carolina, originally, we didn't have any rivers like that. We had small rivers like the Mississippi River, like that was a whole different experience to pass over that river for the first time. Do you know how far across it is just in normal times of the year? It's almost a thousand feet across, almost a fifth of a mile across is the Mississippi River just in normal times. And so you cross over that bridge and you're just like, it's just awe-inspiring to see a river of this power and magnitude. Do you know how far across the Jordan River could be at flood stage? It could be over a mile wide at flood stage. And worse than the Mississippi, there is a great drop in elevation as you go down. So it would have been up to a mile wide, like potentially class three, four, or five rapids going down there. What does that indicate? This is impossible. Even the strongest swimmers could not have gotten across the Jordan River at that point. And God had made them camp out and look at it for three days. Like how in the world are we ever going to get across this massive body of water? There is no way. The Lord is saying, if you look at the text in verse 10, Joshua 3.10, this is the purpose of the, of the miracle. Before they were gonna go in the promised land, they needed to be reminded about the power and capacity of the God of the Hebrews. Verse 10, here is how you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will without fail, because this was the million dollar question, how in the world would they be able to occupy this land given all these people groups that were there? Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites, okay? This is how you're gonna know because I'm going to do something that is going to blow your mind. I'm gonna remind you who it is who is the God of the Hebrews. The moment the Levitical priests their feet stepped in that water with the Ark of the Covenant. What does the text say happened? The river dried up. It dried up 18 miles upstream so that an entire nation could go across. Do you remember how far the Lord said there needed to be a distance between the people and the Ark of the Covenant? Do you remember? In, in, our, in our metrics of measurement, a half a mile. The people needed to be a half a mile behind the ark, not just because the ark was holy, so they could appreciate the magnitude of the miracle. So they would know who it is who was with them. Now, every night when I put, almost every night, um, when I put Virginia Lee to bed, Virginia Lee, she always is asked, Dad, are you gonna mention me in the sermon today? So Virginia's getting a shout out today. I may have told you this, so our kind of nighttime routine, uh, and then I go to Cole's room and do the same thing. Um, that's just a joke, sorry. About <laughs> that really was, that was bad, wasn't it? I'm so sorry. I'm not sure how to recover from that. Okay, at any rate, 
In reality, I go to Virginia's room. We have the exact same bedtime routine every night. We always read different books. I read a book to her. So now we're kind of going through the Harry Potter series, and and that's been a fun book to read through over the years. But there's this one part that's very poignant and beautiful, and um, Dumbledore, who is the headmaster of the school, who's the greatest wizard of the age and, 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 and powerful beyond belief, he and Harry have just come back from a perilous mission, one that Dumbledore barely survived, and Dumbledore's in this weakened state, and it They didn't even know if they were going to get back to the school. And so Harry says to Dumbledore, you know, I'll help you. I can help do this last part. And Dumbledore in his weakened state says to Harry, oh, I'm not worried, Harry. I'm with you. And like when you're reading this book, you're like, that was like, I mean, I I started to weep. Harry was the chosen one, even though he was just a boy. Dumbledore said, oh, I'm not worried at all because I'm with you. And in a sense, that was to be the attitude of God's people. I'm encouraged, I'm confident, I have assurance because I'm with you. And because I'm with you, I know that we are gonna be successful in this. So that's, that's observation number one. Observation number two. All of these things are in the Old Testament. I, I, we've mentioned this so many times. Remember, the New Testament is in the Old Testament. What? You should know this by now, this little phrase. I don't know who, I don't know if it was Augustine who, that would sound good if it was Augustine who came up with this quote, but the New Testament is in the Old Testament. What? Concealed, okay. The Old Testament is in the New Testament. Revealed. The Old Testament, all these things, like someone says, well, someone said, well, why didn't Jesus just come, you know, in the Old Testament? Why didn't he just come, you know, thousands of years before he did? Because all of these things were preparatory. All of these things were pedagogical. All of these things that are happening in the Old Covenant were to teach God's people slowly, surely, preparatorily what is coming. Once you understand that, it's incredible what's happening here, how everything that happens here anticipates a greater reality later. So when the people are crossing over the Jordan River and they're going into the promised land, what do you think that anticipates? The Jordan River crossing is the bookend of the Exodus. When the people were delivered from Egypt, They pass through the waters of the Red Sea. The New Testament equates that with a kind of baptism. In 1 Corinthians, it says that the people of Israel, when they passed through the sea, they were baptized into Moses and in the cloud and the sea. And that passing through the water of the Red Sea was like a baptism. It was like a movement from death to life. The exodus is bracketed. The exodus is bookended. It starts with the Red Sea crossing. It ends with the Jordan crossing. They're crossing over the river and they're going to the promised land. What did the promised land represent? We talked about in that in Revelation. The promised land foreshadowed the new heavens and the new earth. And so they are crossing through the waters of baptism to go to Canaan. If you think about what did Jesus do when he started his ministry, where did he go? 
the Jordan River. Did Jesus need to be baptized for himself? No. But Jesus was baptized to identify the people, and then Jesus went in to the land to redeem a people. The more you study this, the more you study this, we can't scratch the surface of the mind and the plan of God Almighty. Absolutely incredible. The Ark of the Covenant. What did the Ark of the Covenant represent? More than anything else, it represented the covenant of God. It represented the presence of God. Where did the presence of God uniquely dwell in the Old Testament? In the tabernacle or the temple, but even more locally than that, where did the presence of God occupy or dwell? Over the Ark of the Covenant, over the mercy seat. What was it intended to remind the people, I'm with you. I'm in the midst of you. I'm in the center of you. The Ark of the Covenant going before the people into what was the equivalent of death, the waters of death, anticipates the Lord Jesus Christ. Emmanuel, what does that mean? God with us, baptized in the Jordan, going before us to conquer a people for himself. Incredible. Now we're going to talk about something that is, that is very difficult in terms for, for anyone to kind of wrap their heart and mind around. It's this idea of holy war. This idea that God was giving his people a land that was occupied with other people. And we're called to love our enemies and to put their needs before our own. You know, Jesus gave um, amazing parables, the parable of the Good Samaritan that teaches us how to love neighbor. We learn that everyone's our neighbor. And yet here, in the context of Canaan, they were crossing over to engage in holy war. In like apologetical terms, oftentimes that's what's called a defeater. If you've ever heard that term, that like, that like it, it kind of stops a person in their tracks when they're thinking about the love of God and Christ Jesus and they're tracking with you and they're attracted to that and then invariably someone will say, well, what about the Old Testament? What about holy war? How, how could that be a part of a gracious God's plan? It's a part of God's gracious plan in that it reinforces the holiness of God. It reinforces the holiness of God. The people who occupied Canaan, the kinds of things that they were engaged in in terms of child sacrifice and things you, you, you wouldn't believe. God was giving people a physical, tangible reminder of just how intense spiritual warfare is. The New Testament, we say, spiritualize it. Like Paul says, our battle is not against what? It's not against flesh and blood, but against whom? The powers, the principalities of this dark age or this dark world. Like, we are now engaged in holy war. Do you understand that? 
We are engaged in a holy war against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And it's every bit as bloody and barbaric and intense as when the people went into Canaan. Anybody who has grappled against the darkness of their own hearts, anybody who has really declared war on the enemy within sin understands this. Sin wants to destroy you, wants to bring you down. The world, the unbelieving world, would like to see nothing better than the church destroyed. But we live in such a comfortable place. Like when you're in La Paz, you can feel it. You can see it. When you're worshiping with this precious community of 50 people and you look at La Paz and you're like, the darkness that, that overwhelms this gorgeous city. You can feel it there. Here, we don't feel it as much. You know, our hearts are dulled. This was pedagogical when they were going in to take the land. It was preparatory. It was to teach you that war is difficult, intense, and bloody, and there's a war going on in your heart and mind, and you cannot do it alone. Thank the Lord we're not doing it alone. Last but certainly not least. Do you think it's a coincidence what Moses' successor is named? Of all the names that could have been chosen for the new Moses, the man who led the people into the promised land, what does Joshua mean literally in Hebrew? It means Yahweh saves the Lord is my salvation. What does the name Jesus mean? Jesus is the Greek form of Joshua. Yahweh saves. Joshua was anticipating the person and work of Jesus. And Jesus says, this is how you will know that I am with you. He gave his life for us. He was raised from the dead for us. He sent his spirit to empower us as we engage in this war. And so that's what we're gonna see. All fall, we're gonna see what that war was like. We're gonna see just how much the Israelites needed the Lord Jesus, how they were incapable on their own. We're gonna see how the stage was set in God's word for the need of the incarnation of Jesus. Isn't it amazing that the more you know the Old Testament, the more you discover the beauty of the new. Pray with me. Our gracious God and Father, thank you for this text. We thank you for how this whets our appetite for what's to come. Father, thank you for, for taking us to the end a few weeks ago so we could better appreciate the beginning and the middle so the stage could be set for the need, for the person and work, the life and death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for the leadership of Joshua, his faithfulness, how he led the people over the watery death of the Jordan into life in the land. We thank you far more for the true Joshua, the Lord Jesus Christ, who through his life, death, and resurrection leads us to the true Canaan. Help us to know 
that we're safe, that we're protected because he's with us and because we're with him. We thank you and we praise you in the matchless name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.